if you're an old soul, Speedy, the old phrase of the day is Hertz Donut. Hertz Donut. Can you guess what oh, that means? Goodness. It's from the 70s, uh, according to the internet. My horrible guess is that, uh-huh. oh, I was hurt so badly that it's like you, you punched a hole through me. Much uh, like okay, you, you made a physical donut. donut a and it's the size of a <laughs> rental car from Hertz. Okay. Let's ask ask our our, our guest for the day. He is a writer based in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. He's a regular contributor to Pitchfork since 2006. Currently producer for the CBC Radio 1 program Q, a writer for Apple Music. He's author of books, This Book is Broken, A Broken Social Scene Story, and Too Much Trouble, A Very Oral History of Danko Jones. His name is Stuart Berman. Stuart, do you have a guess to what Hertz Donut means? Um, is it just like a pun on hurt? Don't it? That is exactly right. Look at Stuart, our our big expert guest. And here's some trivia, some relevant trivia. So I'm I'm calling you from Hamilton, Ontario, which is about you know half hour outside Toronto. But Hamilton is a site of great historical significance to the donut. I'm not I'm not sure if you're familiar with the chain Tim Hortons, which is basically the biggest fast food chain in Canada, even bigger than McDonald's. And I last few times I've been in the US, I've noticed they're starting to invade uh, down there a little bit more. But the very first Tim Hortons location ever is in Hamilton, Ontario. Wow. So, so that wow. doesn't hurt so, donut. So the, that's the donut gods are, are, are looking down on this podcast right now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How, how perfect. We finally get a man with accolades. And not only is he an expert in the field of what you're talking about, but he's he's got donut knowledge. Yeah. Yes. He knew the old. I feel bad, though, because he immediately decided that this could only mean that he's old. And he was like, oh, I knew the phrase. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to know it. Yeah, I'm a Gen Xer. So, you know, I feel like I'm like half old and half desperately trying to stay young. Well, I'm looking at you on this video call and you look lovely and vivacious and oh, young thank you. it's, it's, so now, now the audience can picture you the apple screen yeah <laughs> yes the laptop screen really compliments um your yeah. hue so speedy as you alluded to we have a main topic today as everyone's reading in the description probably in the podcast episode but we were talking about charlie watts the drummer for rolling stone who recently passed uh as is normal in the jewish religion we like to honor life Instead of dwelling on death, so we're going to honor the life of Charlie Watts. Um, but first, we have a couple other order of business to get to, which includes um, what we call previously on this week, where Speedy tells us things that happened in different years during this time. What do you have, Speedy? Yes, this week in history, uh, the birds played uh, at Whiskey A Go Go in Hollywood, California, and um, Johnny Rivers was playing, and there was a DJ in a skirt who was spinning records and suspended from a cage from the ceiling. And uh, she started to kind of dance while she was in that cage. And that is how the idea of the concept of go-go, go-go dancers in cages was born this week. It, w- it wasn't Motley Crue who did it. No. Stuart, you were nodding like you knew that. Did you know that one? I did, I did not know that that was the... the I mean, I, I knew the go-go dancers originated in the 60s. Um, okay. Yeah. And the but, name uh, of the I was, not was aware Whiskey of the, A Go-Go. <laughs> I, I did not know about that connection. 
I didn't know it had to do with a titular venue. That is very exciting. Uh, and what, what else, Beatty? Yes, the other one I have is actually uh, Rolling Stones related. Um, they played an Perfect. infamous um, performance in Dublin. And only 12 minutes into the performance, a, a riot of like 30 fans just flooded the stage. And they all had to, to stop playing. They all fled. Uh, but if you look up a video of the incident, I was greatly enjoying this. Unfortunately, podcasts are audio only, so I can't I can't show you guys the video. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is it what does it look like? It's well, it, it's complete chaos. But Charlie Watts continues to drum <laughs> as Perfect. everyone else is fleeing. Mick Jagger clatters to the floor. People are running, and he's like, "God, show must go on. Gotta keep going." Yep. Um, he was there for so one job. So that isn't just a exactly. <laughs> he's the backbone. He has to keep yep. it going for the rest of the group. So, so what? What year was that? Uh, that was 1965. In Dublin. Wow. They were big enough by 65 to have people rush the stage. I mean, they'd only been around for like two years at that point. Well, Satisfaction <laughs> was summer of 65. So that would have been their first massive, massive hit. Yeah, but you would like yeah. when Carly Rae Jepsen had her summer with Call Me Maybe, people weren't rushing the stage because she had one hit. Like they had Satisfaction <laughs> and Get Off but My Cloud. And then people. Yeah, Get Off My Cloud, yeah. <laughs> but people back then never heard music before. So it was very. <laughs> It's very That's shocking true. experience. <laughs> Nobody heard Call Me Maybe. It was like, this is music. Satisfaction oh was God. the first song ever written. Yeah. And for many people, it was. And apparently in Ireland. Okay. Before we get to Rolling Stones, uh, we're going to start doing a thing where we read misheard lyrics. So our last episode was people sent in lyrics they've always gotten wrong. We have so many. There was so much overflow. I want to read one a week and then see if Stuart has one. Um, okay. Someone wrote in, and I love this, that the song Brick House... By the Commodores, mm -hmm. when they when when Ronald Ritchie sings, she's my tomato and she's letting it all hang out. They thought that he invented or he was he was referring to some, uh, I don't know some noun where that he was saying she's my tomate, some Hispanic <laughs> word that was like, I don't know what tomate would mean. It was like a cool funky tomato, but he thought they he was saying she's my tomate. <laughs> Oh, I like that. That's very close to tamale, but not not quite. Right. That, yes, that was exactly my thought. Uh, the tomato Stuart, tamale you, combo. Yeah, yes, tomato <laughs> tomate. What's tamale. the difference, Lionel? <laughs> yeah. uh, Stuart, do you have one you you can share? I mean, the earliest one I remember always getting wrong um, was the. Speaking of old folks music, uh, you know the the song "Blinded by the Light." Not the weekend one, oh, the Bruce yeah. Springsteen one, but as covered by Manfred Mann, which is like the big 70s classic rock radio staple. And the way he sings the chorus, blinded by the light, wrapped up like a douche, another mm -hmm. roller in the night, you know, for the longest time, I thought he was singing about feminine hygiene products, but uh, it turns out <laughs> it's a douche. But he uh, does really Stuart. lean into the shit and the douche. <laughs> uh, it, it's a very common uh, misheard lyric, uh, you know, up there with "Excuse me while I kiss this guy." You know, that's I think that's the number one misheard uh -huh. lyric of all time. S Stuart, you are surrounded by friends right now because we yeah. spent ten minutes on that Bruce Springsteen song <laughs> in our podcast because we were trying. To, we did. We so many people wrote it in, and then I actually thought that those were the words too, and I was like, "Why yeah. is everyone commenting this? <laughs> That's what the words are." <laughs> uh, the other one, 
it's more of like a inside joke among friends that like Nirvana smells like Teen Spirit. At, you know, at the end of each course, he goes, "Hey." Um, we always joked like it would be funny if he was saying Dave, just like just throwing, <laughs> shouting out a guy named Dave at the end of each course, like. He, he's change, yelling at really changes the the vibe of the song. You think he's, he's just, yelling at Dave Grohl. He's like Dave, Dave, <laughs> Dave. It, it, keep all up. Made, it, it all made sense at the time. Dave, <laughs> right? It's such a nonsense song. It kind of changes it if you if it's an impassioned message to somebody like yeah. mosquito, <laughs> my libido, Dave, yeah. <laughs> Dave, my libido. What's wrong with it, Dave Grohl? <laughs> yeah, he was secret coded message you know what's funny is that all i want to do is ask you what it's like to be a pitchfork writer but let's get to the rolling stones i'll i'll save my okay. pitchfork questions um all right so i i think before we get to charlie watts because some of our listeners are people who identify with how we feel as old souls but maybe aren't as big of lifetime nerds i want to make sure we take time just to talk about the rolling stones period and where they stand at the pantheon of music before we get to specifically why Charlie Watts is one of the most underrated and underappreciated drummers yeah. ever. Where now they're on Rolling Stones list of greatest artists they're number four. On Parade Magazine's list of greatest bands are number two. Where do you have the Rolling Stones on your lists internally? Ooh. Um, yeah, definitely a top ten band. Um it's funny. On the one hand, you know, I can listen to the Stones and go, okay. This is, they, they really are the world's greatest rock and roll band. You know, when they were on, they were, you know, untouchable. But I think, you know, they lasted longer than everyone else. So that makes them also like the funniest band of all time, too. Like, they're just so easy to kind of joke about at this point. It almost like, you know, tarnishes their legacy a bit. The fact that they lasted so long, which on the one hand is like, people say that's a great thing it you know it shows they're like the gold standard for survival and perseverance but you know the longer you stick around the more below average records you're going to make um you know the beatles had it perfect <laughs> by just saying like all right 10 years we're done every record's a classic <laughs> we're going out on top the stones you know they they just kept rolling and rolling and rolling so you know i, I can imagine for a younger listener who's just sort of like discovering the stones there's probably parts of them elements of the stones that maybe seem a little, like a little too old-fashioned or a little corny or like what's the big deal um but you know if you direct them to the right records i think their music is still still has a lot of power and still you know can still sound like nothing else even though they have like so many imitators over the years you know no one can do the stones better than the stones when the stones were at their best, which I would say is like from 66 to, you know, 78 is like, you know, prime stones. You know, I, I, over the years I've developed more of an affinity for like the tattoo you undercover the night era stuff in, into the early eighties. But, um, but yeah, I mean, from, I'd say like from 68 to 72, like there's, probably never been a better rock band than the stones were in that yeah, in that time it's the, the, the short answer is it's complicated <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i enjoyed your beatles comparison because that is kind of yeah. how i feel like i i think about the beatles and i feel like i have a, a pretty good understanding of every 
phase that they went through and every phase was so distinct, but the stones have been around for along for around for so long. You know, I feel like uh, there's bits and pieces that I've grabbed onto is, ah, that's my favorite stones, but there's such a wider uh, breadth of, of material to even swim through. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the Beatles, I think the big difference between the Beatles and the stones is like, yeah, the Beatles, where the Beatles started and where they ended were like two vastly different universes. But the Stones kind of always go back to their roots. You know, they never, they've never shaken off being like a bluesy rock band. They like, to, even as they go into like disco and funk and reggae, they always circle back to like being a rock band. I think I, you know, I did a piece um, for Pitchfork like two years ago when um, their last greatest hits set came out. And the title was like 10 Rolling Stones songs that don't sound like the Rolling Stones. So like I was highlighting moments in their catalog where they kind of shook off that kind of bluesy rock reputation and sort of did something different and surprising. And when you look at the Stones, like you could make an argument that they've been just as experimental as the Beatles ever got over the years. It's just they always kind of hedge their bets and, you know, never quite let go of, of the bluesy days. So, you know, I compared them to like a foodie who like wants to check out every hot new restaurant in town and Instagram their the new poke dish at, you know, the local Asian fusion restaurant, but then on the way home stops at McDonald's for a cheeseburger because like that's what they really want. <laughs> and so the yeah, stones... they, they, they go to different Asian fusion restaurants, but then still always order pad thai. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're going to get the same thing just in a different place. Or get the chicken nuggets off the children's menu. Just to, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. But they're there. <laughs> they're at the restaurant. Yeah. They're just going to get what yeah. they usually get. Yeah, the thing is, you know, on the one hand, I still think the Stones are a highly influential band, like, you know, filtering down through, like, the White Stripes and the Black Keys and, you know, Alabama Shakes and, like, all that kind of new strain of retro soul rock. Like, that's still very Rolling Stones influence. But, I feel like the Beatles influence sort of blossoms in like lots of different directions. Like you have like hip hop and electronic producers that still pull ideas from the Beatles on top of just like guitar rock bands, even like, you know, boy bands, you know, take a few pages from the Beatles. Like, I feel like, yeah, the Beatles music lends itself to a lot more different interpretations. Whereas if you're going to try to sound like the Rolling Stones, you're just going to sound like the Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah if you're a fan of chicken nuggets then you should order the chicken nuggets and i feel like the rolling stones (laughs) were at their best when they were doing their bluesy thing and you know most of my favorite stones tracks tend to be on the bluesier side um i think it's really interesting too that um you know they're an english rock band but they're taking american blues influence and they sort of as, as they got popular in the u.s brought um I don't know, the younger crowd at the time got more interested in blues because of the Stones. Um, so I think that's interesting. The blues flew to England, came back with the Stones um, to get younger Americans more interested in the blues. And like, um, I think Muddy Waters said that he was grateful for the Rolling Stones because once they got popularity, his album sales actually started to increase yeah. as well. <laughs> and, you know, that for all the sort of mimicry and feeling from black music they did, you know, they were also pretty good at, you know, taking those, their heroes out on the road or like exposing their audience to their, to their idols and yeah, giving those careers like a second wind for sure. 
unlike Led Zeppelin. Although the Stones anyway. had like a bit of a, I think on Beggar's Banquet, they originally didn't credit uh, the writer Prodigal Son and had to get taken to court. Yeah, I, I'd have to double check that. But I know that, you know, the Rolling Stones weren't immune to the odd, uh, you know, copyright uh, infringement. Uh, they were forced to then correct. Okay, so let's actually, for our listeners at home who don't know the Rolling Stones as well, I'm going to read you their top five. We like to do this, Stuart. I don't know if you'll find this interesting. I, yeah. We like to look at bands that are from a long time ago and see now what their most played songs on Spotify are because it kind of helps us see what right. people find popular when the quantifying didn't start till like 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Paint It Black is number one. Hmm. Then Satisfaction. Hmm. Then Start Me Up. Then Give Me Shelter. And then Sympathy for the Devil is five. What do you think about that order of listening totals? Was I mean, Paint It Black's an amazing song. I, I'm surprised it's the number one, but especially since I feel like there was a moment in like the late eighties where it appeared in like Vietnam movies. So like, I remember it having a bit of a moment when I was a kid, there was this show called tour of duty on, uh, I think it was on CBS when I was a kid and it was like set in the Vietnam war and paint it black was the theme song. And that became like a popular song at school. Oh really? Yeah. It's funny you say so that because I always think of like sympathy for the devil is in every, uh, Martin Scorsese movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I, w- I would have thought start me up would have been number one just cause it's, it is a little more current compared to Satisfaction. I mean, I know the song's 40 years old now, but that was sort of like the modern stone sound kind of started with Satisfaction or with uh, Start Me Up. So I would have thought maybe that had a little more contemporary uh, currency. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that sounds about right. There's no there's no real shockers on that list. I'm surprised, like, if you can't always get what you want, not the... Uh, not high uh, I, can, I can look. They only list their top 10. Right. Um, but that, yeah, that's not in the top 10. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And that maybe speaks to like more of a yeah cultural shift. Like, so like I grew up, I came of age in the 80s, which in a way was a weird echo of the 60s. Like 60s nostalgia was really heavy in the 80s growing up, like Vietnam movies and like stuff like the Wonder Years. Um, there's a it was like the 20th anniversary of a lot of landmark records was happening. So it was kind of the first instance of the music industry. You're like really cashing in on nostalgia. Um, and another big thing was like the big chill soundtrack, which had all this like Motown stuff on it. And I think you can't always get what you want was in that movie as well. Um, so I feel like that, you know, I have a lot of memories of that song tied to a lot of the sixties nostalgia happening in pop culture at the time. But I guess, yeah, over time that's, that's sort of faded away a bit again like it, yeah it's in a way it feels like the stones music hasn't had it almost hasn't had the opportunity to be revived because the band is still here <laughs> whereas like <laughs> i feel like the beatles go through waves of revival because they've been gone for so long and new generations discover them and they're discovering them completely without you know any baggage really whereas it's the stones they're still here, so it's hard to see them as like something to be rediscovered when they've never gone away. I kind of feel the same thing about how, um, yeah, I've, I've had this discussion with some colleagues about how REM doesn't seem as oh cool 
as like the cure or the smiths in in terms of like 80s indie bands oh i love this conversation oh this is so fun oh what a deviate so bad (laughs) and my theory is (laughs) is that you know the smiths you know had their moment and you know they're kind of eternally cool despite morrissey's recent transgressions you know the, the smiths sort of exist in a you know and you know frozen in amber um whereas rem got super popular with music that wasn't necessarily their coolest music for lack of a better term like when rem got super popular they were no longer a hip band so you have a whole generation who grew up with rem as like the pop band on the radio and therefore like they're not seen as cool as the smiths who never kind of crossed over to that extent and kind of remained this like weird little cult band for a lot of people so so you know the beatles and the stones kind of have a similar dynamic in that sense because the stones again they're they're always going on tour charging 500 billion dollars for tickets and you know playing for a bunch of rich folks (laughs) in the the front rows (laughs) whereas the beatles kind of still exist as this kind of magical entity that's frozen in time gosh i have so many thoughts on that but I don't want to keep yeah. people just hearing us debate <laughs> Beatles or Stones. And then you throw an REM in there. And it's like, oh, okay. Um, but let, let's get to Charlie Watts. I'm going to read yeah. Stuart's words from his article that he wrote about the best moments of Charlie Watts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you what you said, Stuart. Okay. So you can kind of explain. So you said, quote, he was the least rock and roll member of the world's greatest rock and roll band, which automatically made him the coolest one. Charlie Watts, the Rolling Stones' resident renaissance man, the impeccably styled, eternally blasé timekeeper who never really shared his bandmates' voracious appetite for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, preferring monogamy, illustration, and jazz instead. Can you explain how he was so different from the rest of them? Uh, Well, he was never really a rock and roll fan. Like, he he flat out said, like, his love was jazz early on. Um, Like, that was his teenage obsession and he wanted to be a jazz player but he kind of fell into playing the blues because that's what you know was happening in london at the time and then um he was playing a band called blues incorporated and you know he got recruited into this new band called the rolling stones and stayed there for the next (laughs) six decades um and you know if you even just watch him play his style is very different than a lot of rock drummers of the day like he kind of held his sticks like a jazz player like you know, kind of holding the left hand uh, you know, drumstick like uh, like like he was playing brushes, you know, more than playing a rock band. And he just, uh, you know, he wasn't Keith Moon, he wasn't John Bonham, he wasn't even Ringo. <laughs> you know, he he had his own sort of, you know, style that was just like super steady, you know, but still like deceptively hard hitting, like. You know, even though it doesn't look like he was putting a lot of effort into those those hits, like he really knew how to like kind of make a spine crack <laughs> with just like the flick of a wrist. And he is one of those rare drummers where you listen to him and you know exactly who's playing. You know, which is kind of a rare thing for a drummer. Like he has, like when you talk about bands that are stonesy, you know, often you know that backbeat is sort of the foundation of it. You know, that's like the first thing that people like rip off when they're trying to write like a stone song. After Charlie Watts passed, I read um, something from the drummer of Metallica. Um, and he was saying that 
you know, a lot of people when they listen to Stone's music, they, you know, you immediately think of the front man and people think, oh yeah, like I'm grooving with Mick Jagger, but he's like, no, 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 you, you are grooving to Charlie Watts because his drumming was so fundamental to their sound. Um, And even going back and listening to some of, you know, my favorite Stone songs, I never thought of it that way before, but it really is the song is his drumming. That's the foundation and everyone's playing on top of it. And, you know, a great example of that is like Street Fighting Man, which is like, you know, classic Stones tune, which amazingly is actually played on acoustic guitar, even though it sounds electric. It's like just them playing really Really? loudly. Yeah. On acoustic instruments. And it's like Charlie's drums kind of just change. Like the he kind of, you know, song starts off as this like big kind of slow motion stomper. And then he just sort of like gradually accelerates it and sort of, and then it kind of ends off in this like weird psychedelic haze of like these you know, buzzing drones. And, um, yeah, it kind of just like, you know, like an airplane, he just sort of like takes off and and the, and the song goes like somewhere else because of him. Stuart, uh, there's an infamous story. And just by saying that, you already know what I'm getting to. But Keith Richards <laughs> confirmed it in his autobiography. And I would love if yeah. you would take the honor of, of sharing the story that i'm assuming you already know what i'm talking about yeah and it just makes you love charlie watts immediately yes um well like all myths you know there's there's certain details that get elaborated or you know i'm not sure what the exact circumstance was but essentially like charlie watts was in his hotel room and um mick jagger called drunk in the middle of the night or or early in the morning because they had to leave and then mick said something like is that my drama is my drama there and then he's like, he's like, get out of here. And so Charlie, like calmly, apparently like put on his suit, walked over to Mick Jagger's hotel room, knocked on the door, Mick opens the door and Charlie clocks him in the face and says, you know, never call me your, your drummer. You're my singer. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I think Keith, the way Keith tells it, like Charlie punched him to the point where Mick nearly fell out the window into like the canal below, but you know, who knows. but but what that i think you know like all great sort of urban legends you know there's like that kernel of truth to it and that you know charlie was you know in many ways like the soul of the band and you know you can't take that guy for granted because you know the stones wouldn't sound like the stones without him and he was kind of like the quiet you know you know kind of like the the i think i compared him in the face in my piece to like an airline pilot like you know kind of guy that you don't really talk to <laughs> but you're sort of placing your life in their hands <laughs> and you know you have this confidence that they'll get the job done and they'll get you where you need to go in one piece yeah and that's what, and that's what charlie did um hey, the story really accentuates that like he was babysitting them right. like, he was the mature <laughs> one he didn't really do drugs like they did in early on yeah and like he's with keith richards and mick jagger who obviously infamously if you read the stories of like Exile on Main Street. There's just thousands of <laughs> pounds of heroin like being imported in this house in France where they record. And then you have Charlie Watts, who is just there to just drum, get in, get out, and get back to jazz. Yeah. Yeah, no, he like he was sort of yeah, the anti-rock star in, in many ways. But still like very stylish, very cool. Like, you know, had you know, great taste in music and art. And, you know, yeah, he just like there's uh, i don't know if you're familiar with like the 
the compilation Hot Rocks, which was like the first Rolling Stone record I ever had. It's like the double album compilation of uh, 64 to 71. And on the back cover is like a shot of the band kind of in their psychedelic phase. Like they're wearing, you know, very extremely 60s attire. Um, and they're hanging out this like burnt out castle somewhere. And they're all sort of like spread out in the frame. Like Brian Jones is hanging out up here in this window and so forth. But Charlie Watts is just standing in the middle like this, like with his arms crossed. <laughs> and for a split second, yeah, as a kid, I was like, oh, is that Mick Jagger? Oh, no, no, that's not Mick Jagger. That's not the lead singer of the band. That's the drummer. But, you know, <laughs> it's a very symbolic photo because it's like, no, he is in many ways the leader of the band just from behind the kit. He's kind of steering the ship. I love that. Even the story of how he joined the band. Um, I believe he was playing with um, Blues Incorporated and then yeah. the Stones kind of had to persuade him to come on board. Um, and, I, you know, I like to picture Charlie Watts as being this like, not not a wise mentor, but <laughs> like he, he looked at the Stones and he said something to the effect of like, you guys are great, but like you, you guys need a good drummer. You guys will, <laughs> will excel if you would just get a good drummer. And then he came in and defined their style. Well, there's there's another famous story with Charlie in the studio, and they're playing, you know, the band's playing, and then Ian Stewart, who was their piano player for a long time, stopped and said, "Charlie, your drums are out of tune." And he's like, "What do you mean?" He's like your drums are okay he's like i don't tune my drums and then they start playing again and then like ian stewart stops again he's like what do you mean you don't tune your drums and he's just like well i just hit them enough and they'll go back in tune eventually <laughs> so you know <laughs> he wasn't one for the like the formalities you know I, it's hard to picture him like being that guy at the gig like you know trying to set up his drums just so <laughs> like i think he had his you know setup that he was comfortable with and kind of use that for the next you know, 50 years. Like he, I don't think he ever like outfit his drum set with gongs or wind chimes or bells or anything. Like, it was all. No, he, he didn't put dynamite on it. Like, like Keith Moon. Yeah. He didn't put it, set it up on a tank like Kiss did back in the day. You know, he just, uh, again, you know, and I said this in my piece, it's like, you know, usually when you say someone treats their music like a job, it's kind of an insult. But with him, it's like, no, he, he took pride in his job and, you know, all he wanted to do was show up to work and do the best job possible and go home at the end of the day and not think about work, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> but when he comes back the next day, you know, he, he'll still give hundred percent. There's like one story about him that like, cause he would just go to the hotel instead of going out yeah. partying with the rest of the band and that, yeah. By like the 2000s, he claimed that he had sketched every bed of every hotel room he had stayed in on tour, and that he had like 12 diaries full of just bed sketchings. Which is like a sharp contrast to like Gene Simmons, who claims he slept with like 4,000 women and took a poll. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, right there, you've got like the, uh, yeah. I, I interviewed Gene Simmons uh, two months ago, and he was pretty rude to me. So, like, I'm always game for Gene Simmons slander now. Yeah, I, I got to interview him like. So it would have been like 20 years ago now for his biography. And, you know, he was exactly what I thought he would be. I wasn't expecting you know, <laughs> anyone <That's> nicer. <laughs> you know, he, Gene, I just, Gene, I thought they were both Jewish, but no, didn't care about that at all. No. I, I do think, I do think Charlie Watts actually would have been kindred spirits with our podcast because I read a quote from him where he said, 
I live in TCM world, Turner Classic Movies. <laughs> he said that he inherited his father's love for 1940s style tailor-made suits and regarded Fred Astaire as, quote, the ultimate in what you should be if you're a professional. He said that to a BBC radio show. And it's like, ah, yeah. oh, this guy sounds like one of us. Yeah, wow. no, he, I but think I just he, swooned a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm swooning. Oh, but, he always had, but he always had like good style throughout the ages. Like it's not like he always showed up dressed as like a 1950s, you know, matinee idol. Like he, his his like new wave era style is really on point. Like it's really sharp. Like his skinny ties and he kind of like shaved his head a bit, um, <laughs> but still looked very classy. Well, actually, the version of the hotel room story that I heard when he went to go and punch oh. Mick Jagger in the face, I mm. heard that, you know, he, he got out of the bed, he shaved, he put on a suit, put on a tie, nice shoes, <laughs> then like walked over member. and punched him in the face. <laughs> that sounds like the extended, like, short film version of the story. It's like, okay, we got to extend this, like, 30-second anecdote to, like, a 15-minute short film. It's like, okay. Yeah, yeah, we got to get to know the characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll show yeah. his routine so you know who he is. The hero yeah. shot. Um, so here's what I'm going to do for the main of this podcast. I want to assemble our Mount Rushmore of rock and roll drummers, and uh-huh. then I want to ask you some pitchfork questions. Does that sound good? Uh, all right, okay. So I think before Charlie Watts died, I had the like rock Rushmore at... Keith Moon, John Bonham, Neil Peart, and Ginger Baker. But now that I've read a lot about Charlie Watts, and I know that Ginger Baker was supposed to be one of the most arrogant people on the planet, I'm ready to bump <laughs> him for Charlie Watts. What well, do you think about that? Well, you should watch the documentary on, on Ginger. Um, Would it change my mind? Oh, no, no. It will totally reinforce everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> But I, you know, I've got a lot of, uh, I got a lot of respect for Ginger because you know he kind of like jumped from cream into like fellow cootie zone, you know. So he's kind of like ahead of the curve and kind of bringing like Afrobeat to uh, to Western audiences. So you know, he's all right in my book. I, you know, it's tough. I mean, that's the thing. Like you mentioned, all those drummers, and it, you know, they all in a way kind of come from the same school. Like they're very acrobatic. You know, they kind of use the whole kit all at once. Um, you know, they're very loud. And, you know, the, you have this sense, like, listening to Keith Moon that everything's about to ex- explode and, like, combust. And Bonham sounds like, you know, he's taking a wrecking ball to, like, a castle. And, you know, Neil Peart's almost like the, like the sci-fi version of that. <laughs> you know, just, like, really pre- <laughs> like really precise, but still, like, blowing up planets, <laughs> like, with every time you take the drums and like then ginger baker yeah it's sort of similar molds like keith noon in a way so charlie like does not fit with any of those guys at all but you know he does i think deserve a place in if if we were to add like a fifth face to the mount rushmore <laughs> or maybe mm-hmm. like you know as maybe put him underneath the four kind of the guy like holding everything up you know the symbolic he's atlas he, yeah, yeah sure. he was uh, number 12. He's number 12 on Rolling Stone's list of greatest yeah. drummers. It's the thing, like, I don't know if anyone necessarily grows up and saying, like, I want to be Charlie Watts in the same way they might have said, I want to be Keith Moon or Neil Peart. Um, you know, it's a very, but, you know, in the same way, like, guitar players, you know, if you talk about guitar players, you know, you talk about Hendrix or Eddie Van Halen, Keith Richards isn't going to be necessarily on that list. But 
Keith has such a distinct style and it's like it's so cool that you know you want to be him anyways so I think like in a way they're sort of analogs to one another in, in their respective fields maybe maybe Charlie doesn't get Mount Rushmore maybe he gets like his Statue of Liberty yeah maybe <laughs> he gets a different monument he gets his own he's on his own island he gets his own <laughs> attraction yeah, he's like, don't want me uh, with these bozos, you know. Right, he wouldn't want to be uh, there anyway. He he would not be able to be together with people. <laughs> I want to stand on my own. Yeah, he's a jazz drummer, he would tell you. Uh, for everyone at home who isn't familiar with what we were talking about, uh, Keith Moon's a drummer for The Who, John Bonham's from Led Zeppelin, Neil Peart is from Rush, Ginger Baker's from Cream. I should have said that early on. Speedy, before we get to all my nerdy pitchfork questions, because my pitchfork is like <laughs> my like the yelp of my opinions on music um <laughs> speedy do you have any charlie any, any other charlie watts or rolling stones thoughts you want to get off your chest oh uh let me see i well, i just want to say because we did not mention it that he had uh, a terrific nickname i don't know if you guys know what that nickname was uh the wembley whammer is what he I, was called I've, <laughs> never, I've never heard that <laughs> Oh, He's really? Good. She is good. This is why we have yes. her around. Yes, he was born in Wembley. So, what's your histories with the Stones? Like, are they something you've grown up your entire life with, or like later discovery that you backtracked into? Yes, I definitely, for, for me, I grew up with the Stones. Um, just, it started as a couple of tracks that I would listen to obsessively. So, for me, that was Miss You, Give Me Shelter, and Sympathy for the Devil. And then, you know, once I reached middle school, my horizons widened and I actually got deeper and deeper. Um, and I right. became more of a true fan rather than indoctrinated at birth uh, right. as a fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know about you, Danny. Uh, I grew up a giant Beatles nerd. And like you, had like a couple songs I liked, especially Give Me Shelter and Sympathy for the Devil for sure. Um, and I think I was just too pretentious. Like, as a kid, like, I remember being a kid, being 10, and being like, I like the Marx Brothers. I can't watch Will Ferrell. Like, being that kind of uh, thing. Like, that's what kind of old soul I am. Like, I thought I was too good for Will Ferrell, and now I adore him. Right. And I was the same with the Stones. I was like, I'm Team Beatles. And then I got into vinyl in the last year, and I found an original Exile on Main Street, and I bought it. And I was like, oh, I didn't know how country they were. Like, they're right. like Graham Parsonsy. Like, and obviously they have relations, but like, they just have so much soul to them that the Beatles don't. And that's where they are different than the Beatles because they're a true rock and roll band. They actually toured every year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, you know, I was, I grew up, like the Beatles, that's the thing, the Beatles are very easy to get to as a young child. And I have a, a kid now too. And it's like, it's easy because, yeah, they're on Yellow Submarine. And it's like, uh, you usher them into this, you know, magical universe, you know, psychedelic pop songs. Whereas the Stones, I remember I was like going, you know, I heard them throughout my whole life, like on, like growing up on the radio, but I wasn't like a committed fan until I think I was like 12 and I was going away to sleepover camp for the first time. And it was like my first time away from home for a long time. So I was feeling a little homesick and on the bus ride up to camp, my friend passed me like Hot Rocks, the cassette of Hot Rocks. And I listened to it and I'm like, oh, I know this song. I know this song. I know this song. And it's like, and I instantly just felt like, okay, I'm old now. I'm getting older now. I'm more sophisticated. I'm not a kid anymore listening to the Beatles. I am a, 
becoming a teenager. It's like the rock and roll exactly. bar mitzvah, you know. It's, like, it's the yeah, rock and I'm, roll bar I'm, I'm old enough to, you know, be a Stones fan now. And then, yeah. Yes, and that's became, literally like, what I did. I became like an obsessed yeah. fan for, for many years after that. And I always I always go back to Stones records. Like I said, like, you know, a record like Beggar's Banquet or, um, you know, like the Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile Run is just like, you know, yeah, it's like the grand slam of, of rock and roll sort of album runs. And, you know, I still, mm. those records still feel very powerful and very, very modern in, in a way to me. Like, you know, they, it's sort of where the Stones sort of stopped being like, just like the bad boy rivals to the Beatles and actually became kind of like an evil, <laughs> sinister rock band that were kind of tapping into their own weird, like black magic. And they kind of mm. seemed like untouchable at, at that point. And, you know, it's, it was sort of like their peak as like, I feel like as songwriters, as musicians, as, as style icons, um, you know, they kind of had it all going on in, in that period from like 68 to 72. So, you know, I still, yeah. Yeah, like Exile still, you know, you listen to that and you can kind of hear the seeds of like punk rock and even grunge in there. Um, and, you know, like Beggar's Banquet is sort of, yeah, the first like alt country record in many ways. Um, and then you have a song like Gimme Shelter, which is still like, you know, still gives me kind of chills when I hear that intro and when I hear like Mary Clayton's voice like wailing on it. Like, you know, that's the thing, like Stones, we, we often talk about the Stones as like a vibe or like an attitude, but we they're really talked about as songwriters in the same way like Lennon McCartney are talking about as songwriters, but like at their peak, like they wrote amazing songs with great lyrics that still like, like pack a punch today. And they weren't just singing about sex and how horny they were. Like, you know, they were, they were getting political in sort of a more oblique way or like, you know, sympathy for the devil. It's just sort of like Jagger riffing on like the nature of evil. That's like course through history and kind of tying it through to like current events. And yeah, that's still, I think like a very, very powerful song. And like their sense of arrangement was, was amazing back then too. I could tell based on Speedy's facial expression when you said give me shelter that we could do an entire episode on give me shelter. Yeah. Speedy, I do love great. that song. I do love this. <laughs> you know, the Stones uh, have never been, they've never been close to being like a heavy metal band in the same way like Zeppelin were, but yeah, you know, give me shelter is like one of the heaviest songs of all time. Oh yeah. And I think it's funny too, just as a little side anecdote, yeah. um, you know, the, the female vocals on that song are so incredible. And it, it just kind of tickles me that it was, I don't want to say that it was an accident, but it was not planned from the start. Um, you know, much like the vocals on Great Gig in the Sky, which are, you know, what make the song. I feel yeah. like the female vocals on, on this track also are what make the song. But, um, you know, they were just in the studio. And then somebody apparently said like, hmm, seems like there should be a girl on this. Someone call up a girl <laughs> and then she yeah, came I, in recorded it and then went back to bed they it was at night they just called her in she sang and she left <laughs> and it's funny it's like we think of, we tend to think of like the beatles as the studio sculptors and the stones as like the live raw rock and roll band but you know it there's very few stones live recordings that i would say are better than the studio versions like i feel like 
at a certain point Jagger just kind of ad-libs his way through the lyrics a lot of the time and like he doesn't sing like the chorus hook on Jumping Jack Flash the way it's meant to be sung. He just kind of goes, it's all that! Yeah! Back in the day! <laughs> um, whereas their studio recordings, they just had like, again, like excellent sense of arrangement, like really great at kind of weaving in new elements at the right time. And yeah, like, so yeah, those records still, I think, are, are very powerful and very, yeah, very modern sounding to me. Let's take five minutes to let us ask you some pitchfork questions i know this okay. is such a weird thing to like <laughs> oh enough rolling stones talk let me talk to you about your online publication oh this is supposed to be a rolling um, stone magazine and pitchfork okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah is that what i said um you recently gave paul mccartney's new album a 6.6 okay. .6. what does that kind of power feel like <laughs> well considering he probably didn't read it and didn't give him a second thought <laughs> didn't give it a passing thought i i don't know how much power that that is <laughs> um it's interesting though like yeah pitchfork obviously because they rate on a numerical scale like it gets a lot of you know scrutiny and like why is this a, how can this only be a six you know it's at least a 7.2 uh i think people read the pitchfork ratings according to like as like an academic rating so they think like a 6.6 .6 is like a d i know in the states you have different like growing up for me 6.6 .6 would be like a c c plus that's like the canadian uh oh so pitchfork you know, is a canadian metric okay well I no but I, th I think the point is like people do apply like american school grades to pitchfork scores so they think like a 6.6 .6 is a d like oh my god you trashed it and it's like no, to us, 6.6 .6 is like, you know, it's like getting three stars out of five in Rolling Stone, which is not the cause for <laughs> an alarm. <laughs> like, That's it's just point. like saying, no, um, this record is pretty good. It has its flaws. Overall, it's decent. You know, carry on with your day. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm... Fan like, culture I'm is real. So. Fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. And they get passionate about their stuff. Like... Like yeah. my brother and I growing up had like the people's list memorized, which is when you guys had like the best albums right. up until Pitchforks <laughs> so far. Like I knew like the order. I know it's, oh, I don't have to nerd out, but um, that's how much I love Pitchfork, which is why it's interesting to hear you say that. But when you tell me like, oh, it's basically like three stars. I'm like, oh, okay, no, I, I get it now. It just looks more daunting because it's a, a specific number with decimals. As I say, like the law of averages dictates that most things will be average. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's very hard to make something that's really perfect, amazing. And it's kind of hard to make something that's absolutely irredeemably terrible. Like most stuff kind of floats somewhere in the middle. And, you know, especially, you know, Pitchfork already you know, being a publication that reviews maybe 20 to 25 records a week. Um, whereas there's literally hundreds of records coming out each week. So, you know, already there's a filter there as to like what is going to get reviewed. It's going to be like stuff that, you know, already is like established with the readership or stuff we think the readership might be interested in. And again, like that's not to say, yeah, every, every review is not an endorsement in and of itself, but what it's saying is, you know, if an artist is being reviewed on Pitchfork, we think it's relevant to what's happening in, in music right now. So I've always wanted to know how you guys decide, because the, the biggest rank you guys give when you review your albums, which is what I look forward to with Pitchfork, is if it's best new music. Yeah. Um, so do you assign a number 
and then it's bigger than all the other reviews as numbers so they give it they bequeath it with that honor or do you say hey i think this is worthy and then there's like a review board in the non-profit board of trustees <laughs> that decides this is worthy like how do you decide who gets that big red little uh, honor symbol at the top of the World Trade Center, there's a dimly lit boardroom where the elders meet uh, once a week <laughs> to determine whether the big red. Yeah, that's what I'm imagining. Because that's how it feels um, to me. Well, I, I should say I am I'm one of like 50 freelancers for the site. So like I'm not involved in the inner sanctum uh, decision-making process. I will say that like best new music designations are more of an editorial department driven decision than, than an individual writer's decision. You know, that's, you know, that's essentially saying Pitchfork recommends this. So Pitchfork as an entity think that this is the best record of the moment or, or the most important record of the moment. It's, you know, I, I heard someone describe it once, I forget it, but basically saying like, Best new music is like a shorthand for like when you run into someone at a party and they're like, what should I be listening to now? Like, okay, here's, here's a list of stuff. No matter what your tastes are, like, you know, even if you're not, you know, hugely into metal, maybe you would like Death Heaven Sunbather, you know, because it's got sort of crossover elements with shoegaze and post-rock and stuff like that. So it's, it's sort of a, yeah, I think there's a lot of consideration given to like what is best new music, both both in terms of like what this record represents culturally as much as what it's doing musically. I don't know if you swear by Pitchfork like I do, Speedy. Do you have any Pitchfork questions that you've always wanted to know about how they do their album reviews? No, but I am still reeling from the news that you don't meet in a secret boardroom at, at the That's very That's true. I'm affected tower. by that. I'm kind of devastated. Exactly. <laughs> the mystique has just been removed completely. It's just out of Chipotle. <laughs> okay. One, I have one more question and, and then I'll stop it there because we, it is late at night yeah. and I know we all have um, things, but I want well, Stuart um, to write an album review. How many times do you have to listen to the album before you're like, okay, I've got this down. I try to listen at least like five times, say like, and try to listen in like different, different environments, you know, different times of day, just to see like something might hit me better, like while I'm taking a walk versus you know, being at a gym or something like that. Like, or you know, sometimes you know, having a record on in the background while you're doing work is a really good litmus test because if you stop and pause and like engage with it while you're busy doing something that tells you, Oh, there's something special here. Like, like I want to investigate further. Um, so yeah, I try to give it a good handful of listens. You know, in some cases you have a record for three months before it comes out. So you have lots of time to, to give it listens. So sometimes it's like a Got big it. record that's dropping in three days and you kind of have to like cram it in to make it sort of like week of release. So. But yeah, definitely try to give it like at least five listens. Um, okay. And some of the, and, and at least try to make like most of those like seriously engaged listens where I'm not really doing anything else or where I can at least focus right. on the music. All right. Well, actually, one last question. I changed my mind. Yeah. Uh, Stuart, what's the, <laughs> what album have you given the highest rating during your 15 years at Pitchfork? Uh, well, not including reissues. Like there have been a handful of reissues that have given like 10. 
it's like the Velvet Underground. <laughs> like, how are you not? <laughs> yeah, right, naturally. <laughs> You're gonna give them a ten. Yeah, give it ten. Or, or like, most recently I did the reissue of the Gun Club's first record, which I gave a nine. But in terms of like what I, I think the highest I've given a brand new current release was um, the Flaming Lips album Embryonic. I believe I gave a nine point oh. I think that's the highest I've ever gone. And I, I did a War on Drugs record, uh, Lost in the Dream. Oh, yeah. So I think oh, I, that's a great album. You did that, that one? An, yeah, I think that was 8.8 .8 on that one. I love War on Drugs. New record coming. Do you have it already, Stuart? It's, do you uh, have the record? Stuart, <laughs> do you have the record? It's located in the Chipotle. It's in a napkin dispenser in the Chipotle. <laughs> Is that the Chipotle or the Board of Trustees <laughs> is reviewing in Times the Square? We, we, we all we all share it. Uh, you know, we, we take turns. You have it, and you have my email. How yeah. convenient! <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, actually, I'm not sure if it's been announced yet. I think it's been it's been announced. No, it is announced. They they released yeah, yeah. a single. They have yeah. They have a new yeah. album. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. So. But, you know, I will say this, you know, people have a lot of theories about Pitchfork and, you know, a lot of, you know, brings brings out a lot of anger in people sometimes. But, you know, at the end of the day, like everyone working there is a serious, committed music fan who, like, really takes the effort to discover new things and give everything a fair shot and, like, you know, is, yeah, is in it for the right reasons, I would say. Um, it's just, you know. Opinions are a funny thing. They don't always align with, uh, you know, with what you're feeling. And I feel like Pitch, I think the reason why people have such an intense ownership, sense of ownership over Pitchfork and the reason why, you know, people get disappointed when their favorite new band gets like 5.4. I think it's because Pitchfork in the 2000s had a real track record of really breaking bands out of nowhere like Broken Social Scene and Arcade Fire and, and even Clap Your Hands Say Yeah, like where like literally overnight, uh, like a high review on Pitchfork kind of like sent a band on their way. It's like, all right, like they're instantly selling out clubs. It was kind of seen as like, okay, that's the golden ticket. Like, this is how we make it. <laughs> like you gotta get an 8.5 or higher on Pitchfork. And so when, <laughs> so when that bar isn't cleared, like when your favorite new band gets a 7.7 because .7, it's a good record, but not perfect. You know, it's like, oh, we missed it. We missed the shot. Like, it's not going to happen this time around. Like, I feel like it's like watching your team lose the Super Bowl or something. It's like, oh, they missed the kick. Like, But, you know, you kind of realize there's actually a lot of factors that go into play. Like, I feel like good press doesn't necessarily create a phenomenon out of nothing what it can do is if there's like a groundswell of attention happening like a well-timed review can be like the thing that pops the balloon and it, things things explode into like the mainstream from there so it's like yeah there's there's a lot of other factors going on when a review like breaks a band like you know have they developed a good reputation as a live band on the road and you know they got good word of mouth and you know they're like a video that's making the rounds you know, it's rare that one article from any publication can like completely transform an artist's career overnight. And if it doesn't, hurts, donut. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
Hey, ladies and gentlemen. That's how you end the podcast. Uh, thank you, Stuart Berman of, of Pitchfork and many things. Thank you for having us. Commemorate one of the greatest drummers of all time, Charlie Watts, uh, the Rolling Stones. We appreciate you, Stuart. Thank you very much. This was fun.